0: Welcome to Horror Comics Podcast. I'm Chris. This is episode number 11. Thanks for being here. Sorry you had to wait so long. I, oh man, it's it's been crazy. It's been wild. It's been bittersweet. It's been heartbreaking. There's been a lot of stuff going on um, that uh, just feels like the universe or something is just pushing you uh, really away from it. But here I am. I made it. I beat you. Um, today I'm talking about something I actually have covered before and it is Tales Too Terrible to Tell from New England Comics Press. And this is issue number 6. Now, if I found something on the previous episode where I had more information on what the hell New England New England Comics Press actually does other than own the tick um, I don't know where I found it because I was going back to just sort of do a little bit of a retread of what they do when they start and all that stuff. I can't find shit. So, uh, you know, and I did it before. So go back to that other episode if I did it. I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, so this is 76 big pages, and it is a bigger book. It's, uh, uh, you know, I talked about it before, but it's um, more not quite the size of, like, Creepy or anything like that. Um, it's kind of a middle ground between Silver Age And creepy, um, it seems like. So anyway, maybe current and creepy. I don't know. No Silver Age for sure. Um, The first story, I'm just going to get right into it. I don't really have anything else to blurb about. The first story I'm talking about here is Jury of the Undead. This was originally published in Journey into Fear, number 14, July 1st, 1953. This was published every other month. This uh, series, Journey into Fear, it actually um, is pub- it was originally published by Superior Publishers Limited, and that was a Canadian company that, m- mostly, but not exclusively, they mostly took American comics, reprinted them, and distributed, re- distributed them through Canada, but they did have some original uh, series, and I, I, it looks like this is one of them. I'm pretty sure this is one of them. Uh, from what I can find... That's the deal. Uh, now, that this series, Journey Into Fear, went from May of 1951 to September of 1954 with 21 issues. I cannot find specific writers. <laughs> I can't find specific artists. It's this all a mystery. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. I wish I had more for you. Some of these other stories are... By different publishers and whatnot, so maybe we'll find you know a little bit a little bit more information moving forward in different stories. But Superior Publishers Limited was um, a Canadian publisher started in the Golden Age of comics. They started out re- by reprinting American comics and distributing them across Canada. Later, they also published a fair number of original comics. The company published comics from 1945 to 1956, and like I said, that's pretty much it. Other than some of the titles that they. Published, which include uh, Aggie Mac, a uh, children and teen marketed uh, humor magazine. Uh, you have a western, Billy the Kid, Black Diamond, Western, uh, crime, detective books, and adventure books like Brenda Starr, Bruce Gentry, uh, Crime and Punishment, Dynamic Comics. You had G.I. War Brides, Jungle Comics, so Love and Marriage, My Secret, and My Secret Marriage. And then Mysteries Weird and Strange, Our Secret, Punch Comics, Red Seal Comics, Secret Romance, Strange Mysteries, Super Funnies, U.S. Fighting Air Force, and My Secret Story one-shots. Now, most of these uh, did not have very many issues. In fact, it looks like Journey into Fear actually had the most by having, well, it says 22. I saw 21 I believe before, so maybe I'm missing something, but yeah, Journey into Fear and then Strange Mysteries had 18. So their 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 mystery and horror comics were definitely their most successful, and that makes sense. I mean, you know, they were they were definitely uh, trying to get into everything that was hitting at the time, you know, and they were they're covering all their bases there. Um, you know, it looks like horror still wins out, obviously. And actually, I'm wrong. It actually looks like Strange Mysteries did have 21 issues. So it's mixed up for some reason. So Strange Mystery and Journey into Fear each had 21 issues. So that's crazy. Uh, That makes sense. But um, So the story that we're covering from Journey into Fear is Jury of the Undead. In a small synopsis before we get into it, Tobias Benton is the hanging judge. And he doesn't care a whit. About guilt or innocence. So how do his victims get revenge? From the grave. A monster in human form, they call him, A cruel and sadistic man who used his powers for his own evil pleasure and the suffering of others. But there is a thing called retribution. And the revenge of the fates can be more terrible than that planned by mere man. So back they came, the vengeful corpses, to bring undreamed of terror to the hanging judge. Judge Tobias Benton—Penton? Benton? Pintner Benton, Benton? Benton, Benton? It's Penton. Hard to tell with the lettering. Is about to pronounce sentence upon some poor devil. Bring the prisoner before the bar. I am, er, ready to sentence him. The sentence, John Stone, is left to my discretion. Life imprisonment or hanging. But because I feel no mercy for your sort, I sentence you to be hanged by the neck until dead. Some weeks later There's the prison now, Judge Penton Hurry, you fool I don't want to miss this hanging Soon Hmm, so that's the gallows Fine I like to be sure that my sentences are properly carried out His driver thinks to himself Sadistic old fool He enjoys this John Stone is being brought down uh, By a police officer Judge Penton Here Mean that he gets to watch me hang? The officer behind him I'm sorry, Stone. Let's have no trouble now. Judge Tobias is standing, on, standing by watching. <laughs> you gallows rogue. Uh, Tobias Stone somehow gets free of this police officer. Now, I did have to go back and look and say, okay, he's not cuffed. He's literally just being walked down in no restraints by this police officer. Then it c- occurred to me, this looks like it's taking place in 1952. Uh, did they hang people anywhere in 1952? Whether, whether it be the states in, uh, I, I don't know, Europe, I, I don't, I'd be interested to, to know. Regardless, Stone goes after the judge. You're the rogue, judge. I'm an innocent man, and you could have saved my life. Keep away from me. The officer, Stone, cut it out. And that's what he says to the guy that they're about to execute as he's attacking the judge. But, okay. I'll show you how it feels to strangle, judge. To gasp for breath. Turn black in the face. I don't know if that's what happened, but I'm just reading here. Help! Now come along.
1: All this won't change anything.
0: That's the officer pulling stone away from the judge. It's stone.
1: I swear I'll get him. I'll come back from the grave. Somehow, I'll have my revenge. I curse him. I curse him forever. That will be enough, stone. Says the, I guess, driver of
0: the judge? Assistant or something? And so Johnstone is duly hanged by the neck until dead. A week later in the judge's home.
1: That'll be all for tonight,
0: Meeks. You can lock up now. Bar all the doors and windows. As usual,
1: sir. I can't be too careful. They all hate me. Even Meeks. Call me the Hanging Judge. Do they? <laughs> I'll hang a lot more of them
0: before I'm through on this earth. I hate all criminal scum. Suddenly the judge feels a coldness in the room. The hair prickles on his neck as he turns and stares. A ghostly figure starts to loom in the shadows.
1: Huh? Who who are you? What do you want? Justice. Only justice. Recognize me, Judge. I've come back as I promised I would.
0: How do I look with the noose around my neck? The noose you put there? A ghost!
1: Yes, of John Stone. Now we'll see how you like the noose. "'There, in a minute, you'll be dead. "'Then I have plans for
0: your ghost.'" Now Johnstone's ghost is wrapping this noose around the judge's neck. Soon the ghost of the dead judge arises. "'You've murdered my body. "'Now leave my ghost alone.'" "'No, we've only started.'" Is a weird sight as the ghost of a hangman drags the ghost of a murdered man.
1: "'No, where are you taking me? "'Leave me in peace. "'Come along, judge.'"
0: Don't you love how my voices for these two guys are are just totally different? I feel like I've really, really got that, and just given them each a unique spin, just to confuse you guys as to uh, if I have a guest on this show or not. Doing and <laughs> calm down, cause trust, it's just me. It's just my many talents of very unique, different voices. So now I'll, I'll continue with those uh, with those different voices. Let's see.
1: You've got an appointment, Judge, with a jury. You ought to feel right at home. A jury? But I'm dead. I'm a ghost. What do I have to do with juries now? And finally... The prison! You're taking me to the prison where they hanged you. Me and a lot of others. But you're wrong. We aren't going to the prison. We're going to the prison cemetery, my old friend. I've got a little surprise waiting for you there. You (laughs) won't like it. A surprise? Me? But this, a tomb. Yeah, a cold, dank tomb, where they
0: keep the bodies of executed men until they get ready to bury them. I'm going to try to differentiate better now. So here's the ghost of Tobias Stone. They're waiting for us now, and we won't keep them waiting any longer. He's knocking on the door. Open up in there. No, please don't make me go in there. Another ghost opens the door as you hear background laughter from all sorts of different ghosts, you have to assume. (laughs)
1: Welcome, Judge. Come in and meet the jury. We've (laughs) been waiting a long time for this. Oh, it's cold in here. Why have you got the tomb fixed up like a courtroom? You'll find out
0: soon. Order in this court. That's very soon because it's literally in the same panel. The ghostly jury sits in an immense coffin.
1: Remember me, Judge? You sentenced me to hang, even though they recommended mercy. Me too, and me.
0: No, that wasn't the same person saying all of that. It was supposed to be three different people. Leave me alone. You're responsible for every ghost here, Judge. We're going to try you now. It was probably supposed to be pronounced, we're going to try you now. But there's no emphasis on letters here, so I say,
1: let the trial begin.
0: I declare this trial begun. Approach the bar of justice, defendant. The prosecution will summon
1: its witness... Why have a trial? He's guilty. Yes, guilty of hanging men because you like it. N- no, I deny it. And how does the prisoner plead? Guilty or not guilty? Not, not guilty, your honor. I swear it, they all lie. I only did my duty. <laughs> his duty, to hang innocent men. And he took the law in his own hands. Guilty, guilty, guilty.
0: The trial is brief, but just as the judge is about to pronounce sentence... Wait, your honor. Tobias Stone steps up. You have been found guilty. I condemn you to... No! Oh, wait, that's not the voice for the judge. The voice for the judge is... No! (laughs) Since Since I killed this man and brought his ghost here, I've remembered something that I learned in prison. I think we should let him go free and also let him return to life. To live again?
1: No, no, you're crazy.
0: Wait... In life, the judge suffered from a dreadful and incurable disease. So, to be sure he suffers for his sins, I say condemn him, not to death, but to life. The cold tomb whirls in a dreadful circle around the judge. We see the ghosts of these juries literally whirling in a circle as the judge screams and they take him off. Back to, seconds later, back in his study, Well, what? I must have fainted. I'm not dead after all. That horrible nightmare I had. So real. For a time, I believed that it was really—I in- was really in that tomb with those creatures. And I'll have to see my doctor again tomorrow about my sickness. The pains get worse all the time. Sometimes I can hardly bear it. At this point, he's reached for uh, either bottle of liquor or wine or something. More days pass, and the judge feels better. Then, as he is about to pass sentence on some unfortunate, I hereby sentence you, my man. The bailiff nearby stands, uh, thinks to himself, "'Here it comes. "'They don't call old Penton the hanging judge for nothing. "'And the jury asks for mercy, too.' "'The defendant, "'No, please, your honor.' "'But suddenly,
1: "'Ow, my chest! "'God, I'm on fire! Uh, "'Help me, someone, the pain! Ugh.
0: "'Later, "'A very rare case, judge. Y- "'You may live for years, but you'll never be well again.' "'Worst part is we can't even ease your pain.' This is three doctors and a nurse surrounding the judge, and the judge says, "'The ghost jury.
1: "'It's
0: true. "'It really
1: happened. "'I was there in the tomb, "'and they condemned me to live. "'It was all true. "'I was dead.'
0: "'Doctor. "'Ghost juries? "'The pain must be driving out of his head. "'Driving him out of his head. "'Yes, I'll try another drug, "'but I know it won't work. "'Nothing can stop his pain, "'and he won't die for years.' And now when people pass the county hospital, they hurry their steps. We hear the judge screaming out his window, Kill me! Let me die! Ha And the people passing by are saying things like horrible and poor guy. Now we see in the cemetery a very fancy little mausoleum like house. Cottage-looking grave here. And you hear the laughter repeating guilty, guilty, guilty coming out of this uh, mausoleum, I guess, if you want to call it that. And if a person is brave enough to enter the prison cemetery after dark, he hears the bone chilling laughter from a certain tomb. The end. Truly a tale too terrible to tell. Um, one thing that I like about this story is really the art. Um, this kind of reminds me of the devil and Daniel Webster I think is the is the old movie. It's an, I think it's an old story, but um, let's see. I believe, yeah, The Devil and Daniel Webster is a nineteen forty one movie. It was adapted by Stephen Vincent Bin, Binet and Dan Tothero. Uh and it, the original short story was written by Stephen Vincent uh, Binet. If I'm saying that right. And they ended up changing the title to All That Money Can Buy to, conf- uh, to avoid confusing with another film released by RKO that year, The Devil and Miss Jones, but later had the title restored on some prints. It's also been released under, under the titles Mr. Scratch, Daniel and the Devil, and Here is a Man. Um, it's a retelling of the Faust legend set in 1840s, rural New Hampshire, and it was directed by German-born director William uh, Deterli, who under his original name, William Wilhelm Deterli played a featured role in F.W. Uh, Murnau's uh, epic silent version of Faust. Anyway, uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is it, it kind of reminds me of that. Um, Mr. Scratch is the devil, and he has a similar sort of court um, deal like this. Anyway, the, I can't remember exactly the, the, the story beats of that, but it, regardless, um, the art of the ghost I thought was cool. It's basically... Like, you've got your typical black and white art, looks great, but the ghosts actually are more of like, they're black lines, pretty much. They're human. It's like a drawing of a person, but it's full of black lines. So that's how you differentiate between the ghosts. It's hard to describe. I know that didn't sound exciting, but I think it looks really cool and it's a good way. Like, when Tobias Stone originally shows up to the judge's house and um, he starts, starts to sort of form in the shadows and then turns into what looks like to buy a stone. But again, with this sort of lines effect of this ghost as he puts the um, noose around his neck. And then as the ghost lined version of the judge, Penton comes out of the body. And then it's the same kind of deal when they go into the uh, cemetery uh, for the jury and all that stuff. So anyway, I thought that was really cool. It's, it's a fun little story, a quick, very quick, obviously. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I'm assuming that they are innocent people. Or maybe it's more of the fact that he doesn't care if they're guilty or innocent. It's just like, if you're on trial, uh, you're going to be hanged because I'm sadistic and I like to watch people die. So I guess that's the deal. And then he gets his comeuppance by living a life of pain for some reason that no uh, drugs or anyone can take away. I, I don't. Whatever. They weren't having to think that that deep into it. So, um, you know, whatever. whatever. It works it, uh, in its own little way. And so we're going to go on to The Reluctant Witch. And this was originally published in Stanley Publications, Chilling Tales of Horror, number two. Uh, the Stanley Publications doesn't have as much uh, information on it as... Um, Stanley Morse himself, because he had multiple companies. It looks like he had Aragon, Gilmore, Key Publications slash Metal Comics. He had Media, uh, SPM, Stanmore, and Timor, Timmer, whatever, T-I-M-O-R, whatever. Uh, books like Mr. Mystery and Weird Chills uh, were, you know, a bunch of different ones. Obviously, Key Publications has some that, um, I can't remember which one, but I think I even have... Maybe I didn't do it yet, but I have an a issue of something under key publications. Anyway, whatever. We'll get around to it. It's more about Chilling Tales of Horror. Um, it looks like this was... We'll just go with this. The cover date for Chilling Tales of Horror uh, number two was August 1st, 1969. 50 cents, man. Um Now, Chilling Tales of Horror uh, is, this is obviously opinion, but I'm blaming AtomicAvenue.com, but this is what they say. Uh, Chilling Tales of Horror is a low-grade version of Warren's Creepy. See what I mean? The 1950s-style horror comics repackaged in a black-and-white magazine format to avoid the restrictions of the Comics Code. However, where Warren's magazine threw inspiration from the outstanding art and storytelling of EC Chilling Tales of Horror reprises the... uh, well, we'll just, they basically just are saying that they use second-string pub, uh, the, the sort of um, M.O. of second-string publishers and third-rate talents. Uh, it's hard to tell if the unsigned stories or originals are or reprints, though evidence points to the latter. The stories plow the familiar ground of ghouls and vampires, psychopaths and sea monsters, drawn in a heavy, craftless style that looks very out of date by the elevated standards of the late 1960s. You
1: bitch!
0: That's very mean. We haven't even gotten into this yet, and that was not a, uh, a swipe at any gender. I'm talking about whoever wrote this. I don't care. You're a dick. I might agree with you after we get through this, but no, for real, though, uh, the Reluctant Witch is what we're going to do. I think the art looks fine. I, I I mean, I guess maybe I'm not a good uh, artist. I don't have any issue with the art here. Uh, I don't know. It's. I mean, yeah, it's not like groundbreaking, but it's not bad by any stretch of the imagination. It looks fantastic, actually. Uh, so anyway, I don't know what these... Guys, fuck these guys. I'm not... Sorry, Atomic Avenue. No, no, I don't need it. I don't need you. I don't need you. Should have found a different website. But, but it doesn't really matter because Tales Too Terrible to Tell has given us their own little blurb. And actually, they do it about each story. So you know what? Actually, retrospect. Let me go back to Jury of the Undead. And just to add to what I've already read about it, I also failed to mention that this issue... God damn it. I know I I found the full list of this series and all that stuff. This issue is from fall of 1992. Um, And I'm talking about this whole Tales uh, issue. Now, going back to Jury of the Undead, and we'll come back to Reluctant Witch. Reluctant Witch? Reluctant. The lead story, Jury of the Dead is a superior classic straight from Journey into Fear number 14. The quality is superb since we shot the tale directly from high-grade stat copies of the original art. As you'll see in Terrorology, Superior comics... I don't know what Terrorology is. i have to look that up. Superior comics are very hard to reproduce from the printed page since the print quality is often poor. Fortunately, some Superior art, original art, has survived. We've reprinted several Superior tales in earlier issues of T-T-T-T-T. Now, the reluctant witch comes from the Stanley Publications Chilling Tales of Horror number 2. This is one of the black and white magazines issued by the company descended from Stanley Morris's pre-code horror companies Gilmore, Stanmore, Key, etc. Many of those magazines reprinted stories straight from the Gilmore titles like Mr. Mystery and Weird Mysteries, etc. This particular story did not appear in the pre-code horror era. However, it's a great adventure about an attractive witch sent to, okay, I won't get into that because I don't want to uh, spoil early the premise. But also, you screw that Atomic Avenue whatever website. This art in this issue I just saw is by uh, High Eisman. Let's just give a little bit about him. I know I keep I'm pushing it back, but... Hi Eisman born March 27th 1927 is American cartoonist active since the 1950s who writes and draws the Sunday strips for Popeye and until the strip went into reruns until in, in sorry in 2006 the Cats and Jammer kids in December 2008 Eisman introduced the character of Bluto to the Popeye wait what December 2 there's no way that, what 2008 anyway I'm just going off ah, okay. okay Introduced the character of Bluto into the Popeye Sunday Strips as the twin brother of Brutus. Maybe it is. Maybe he's still alive. Is he still alive? That would be insane. That's awesome. Okay, so, yeah, maybe it's true. In 2008, Iisman introduced the character of Bluto into the Popeye Sunday Strips as the twin brother of Brutus. He entered the comic strip field in 1950 and worked on several strips, including uh, Carrie Drake, Little Iodine, and Bunny. In comic books, he was the last artist doing Little Lulu before it was canceled in 1984. He took over the Cats and Jammer Kids in 1986 and the Popeye Sunday Strip in 1994. An interview with Eisman on his career appeared in Hogan's Alley number no. 15 from 2007. So, yeah, I guess the 2008 date up there on uh, Bluto makes sense. In 1976, Eisman, who lives in Glen Rock, New Jersey, lives, he's still alive, became a teacher at the Joe Kubert School of Cartoon and Graphic Art. He has two daughters by his first marriage. His wife, of 42 years, died of cancer in the fall of 1997. That's very sad. On June 27, 2004, he married Florence Greenberg, whose husband also died in 1997. She was the managing editor at Cavan Carey Press, a nonprofit publisher of literary works in Fort Lee, New Jersey. Their wedding invitation was a comic strip with Popeye and olive oil. Florence Greenberg died on October 20th, 2013, in Glen Rock, New Jersey. That's very sad. He's lost two wives. Uh, but he has won um, the 1975 National Cartoonist Society's Award for Best Humor Comic Book Car- uh, Cartoonist for Gold Keys Nancy Comic Books. In 1983, he received an award for his work on the Little Lulu comic book. Um, now, as I was saying before, the art in this story is, is fantastic. Uh, when I say it's not groundbreaking, it's not like trippy or like something like you've never seen before. But it's great comic book artwork. Uh, so, again, that Atomic Avenue thing saying it's whatever. Hey, go fuck yourself. Anyway, sorry. Now we can get into The Reluctant Witch. Those of us who enjoy the creeping dread of a supernatural story are a hardy breed. It takes a lot to thrill us. But here is a tale of terror that should fill anyone's bill. Even yours, if you're not left breathless by this masterpiece of pure horror, you're as human as the Reluctant Witch. Now, we do get kind of the typical preview panel in the title, uh, you know, underneath the title and the intro and whatnot. Not going to read that. I'm going to, I'm just going to go. I mean, there's not much to read. It's just, it's a scene that we'll get to and I don't think it's necessary to say from the beginning. The beginning was no more terrifying than a notice on the obituary page. Lorna Starr, local girl dies. Is that the obituary that her family wrote for her? Local girl dies. That's, I mean, I guess there's more underneath it. It's chicken scratch, but, like, that's the headline? Whatever. There were not many who grieved for the dead girl. Okay, that makes sense. Who grieved for the dead girl. We see an old man and old woman on their front porch. Hmm. She sure wasn't wildin'. The way she carried on, it's a wonder she lasted this long. Is that what the obituary said? Well, I, okay, now I wish they would have gone into detail with this thing. The old woman says, Hush, pal. Be respectful of the dead. We go to a local barber shop, And the barber is saying, If he ask me, I'll bet she gives the devil himself lots of trouble. What the hell did this girl do? I mean, regardless, I guess it was enough, but... <sighs> A few a few <clears throat> a few days later as an eerie mist wreathed the countryside we see a spirit a hooded spirit above her gravestone that reads Lorna Star 1930 to 1953 arise Lorna Star arise and meet your spiritual destiny we see Lorna Star she says who calls i have come to escort you to Hades the master has interesting plans for you Plants for me? At last, before the throne of Satan himself. Here we try to assign souls to jobs that fit them best. So, uh, because of your beauty and your life's record, uh, you'll make a very successful witch. Horrified at first, Lorna soon accepted her fate, and her training began. Now, Lorna butchers a uh, sort of a cauldron... Uh, or a recipe in a cauldron, um, there is weird, it's, um, she messes up in her response to the, there's a lumpy old witch that's there to sort of be her trainer, and she's, you know, scorting her, and Lorna's like, but there's so much to remember, and it's crazy, I've never seen this, at, like, okay, so right where the sort of tornado of the word bubble, if you want to call it that, comes out of their mouth, there's a 13 written in there, now, I get that, It's just weird because it's not like she's saying 13. It's like written in the art. I don't know. It's very strange. Anyway, I feel like, I mean, obviously it was intentional, but I thought that was very interesting. Anyway, we go on. She's having trouble. She's not quite getting the whole broom flying thing. At long last, Lorna was graduated a full-fledged witch. After all those failures, she's now a full-fledged witch.
1: Uh, Here's your first assignment. You will go back. To earth as Lorna Hayes, girl reporter. This man is Lon Terry.
0: She's showing the face of a man in the cauldron.
1: Crusading editor who is doing too much good for the world. You will get a job on his newspaper. And then you will crush him. Ruin his reputation. This should
0: be easy, says Lorna. Shortly afterward, in the office of Lon Terry, a strikingly beautiful girl has appeared. Uh, Mr. Terry, I I admire your campaign against evil, and I want to be a part of it. You are, as of now. Lon Terry takes her hand. It was Lon's policy to know his employees socially. (laughs) So that evening, the waiter is there. They're at a table in a little booth with some uh, zebra skin uh, covered uh, furniture here. Ginger ale for me, waiter. I don't drink. Lorna thinks to herself, hmm, this may be harder than I thought. Oh, Mr. Terry, I left my handbag in the check room. Will you get it, please? Sure thing. Be right back. Time to put a hex on his drink. In a few minutes, Lon Terry will be arrested for murder. And she does a little hand motion, and we see some smoke come over his drink, and sure enough, minutes later, should we, uh, drink to something? Sure is to success on your new job suddenly a hideous change came over Lon's handsome features what what's happened to me I have a sudden urge to kill as the waiter presented the check you thief how dare you charge such prices oh M- Mr. Terry he grabs the waiter by the collar with a fury greater than mortal strength now die you dog I'm sorry I can't ha- help but laugh over drink prices I I love it but then the great power of goodness within Lon struggled for supremacy. What, what am I doing? Lorna, let's get out of here. She thinks to herself, something's gone wrong. Invisible to all but Lorna. A frightful shape materializes, and it's the lumpy old witch. Fool, you
1: didn't use the proper spell. But I... Now watch me. I'll show you how to ruin a man. The way home
0: was dark, forbidding. I'm sorry about what happened inside, Lorna. I forget it, Lon. As the stranger approached a shadowed fence, the Lumpy Witch and two demons come out with bats from around the corner and attack a man. The Lumpy Witch commands them, Attack my beauties! candle. Now, Lon and Lorna are standing back as they watch this happening, and Lon's like, What the? Lon's attempted aid was futile. Against the mighty forces of darkness. Now, the demon takes him down and says, Don't interfere, fuel. Don't interfere, fuel. Don't interfere, fool. Lorna,
1: but how can this hurt Lon? He's innocent. The police will find his fingerprints on the death weapon, and you will say you saw
0: him kill the man. And as the police car shrieked to a halt,
1: Do as I told you, and you will pass the test.
0: The officer, Okay, lady, what happened here? Lorna thinks to herself, what's wrong with me? I I can't go through with it. Two men were beating that poor fellow when Mr. Terry tried to help him. They knocked him out. Then they ran away. But then we'll probably find the culprits soon as we check for fingerprints. Now she thinks to herself, but Lon's fingerprints are on the club. A furtive gesture and the fingerprints vanished. She thinks to herself, now Lon's safe. In next day's headlines, editor slugged trying to save mugging victim, but it was not good news for the fiendish powers of Hades. The witch is uh, at Lorna's apartment in the window.
1: The master said to give you one more chance. Fail this time and you'll be banished to the eternal flames. I'll, I'll try. Listen, at the annual artist and writer's ball tonight, this is what you must do.
0: This year, the masquerade was given by Lon's newspaper. Among the guests were the employees of a rival paper. We see lots of demons and party-goers here, balloons and whatnot, and Lorna's wearing a hat and, like, a robin-type mask. The demons, they're here already, and nobody recognizes them. There was still another uninvited guest from the portals of the beyond. Now do you remember your instructions? At midnight, the employees of the rival newspaper will be killed. After you and your demons escape... I'll say I heard Lon plotting the murder so he wouldn't have any competition. Later, Lorna and Lon are dancing to it with each other, and Lon is dressed as a pirate with also a Robin-type mask. Lorna, I'm a successful editor, but I wonder if I'd make a successful husband. I'll tell you later, Lon. <laughs> now she thinks to herself, Do I love him? Enough to brave the eternal fires? And as midnight struck, so struck terror among the horrified guests now we see the demons attacking saying things like it's choking time and someone else saying help suddenly a small figure sprang into action lorna had made her decision stop demons back in your dark domain i who has whose power is greater than yours command you even as the monsters paused a shriek rent the air wait
1: do your duty when the master hears about this, that fool will be destroyed.
0: But suddenly, amidst a thunderous crash, a mighty form appeared. It's the master himself. At last, i uh, meet one willing to risk every everlasting agony for her loved one. Uh, such goodness does not belong in Hades. Thus, Lorna, I make you mortal again, uh, to live out your life, uh, lifespan, and in your new body as a woman. And when I leave, no memory of this night's events will remain. Farewell. Crash. A moment later, the hall was cleansed of all evil things, as though they had never been. Lon and Lorna look at each other. Lon, darling? Yes, Lorna? Sweetheart? I think you'll make a wonderful husband. For me? The end. I need to go back a couple of pages and just read the intro. Those of us who
1: enjoy the creeping dread of a supernatural story are a hearty breed. It takes a lot to thrill us, but here's a tale of terror that should fill anyone's bill, even yours. If we're not left breathless by this masterpiece of pure horror, yours and his, hu- no. <clears throat> yours-, <clears throat> yours as inhuman as the reluctant witch. Something doesn't
0: quite add up here. It's a f- love story that's, um. That ends up pretty happy. What? That is truly a twist. Not expecting that. So, um, yeah. I have a feeling uh, the devil is not going to appreciate, I guess, my voice of him. But, hey, you got to do it based off of the art. And while the art is great, um, this story <laughs> definitely did had a different turn than I thought it was going to. So I have to give it that. Um, the happy ending, you know? Sometimes, usually, somebody suffers, uh, suffers in the end. But hey, you know, not with this one. Not with Chilling Tales of Horror. This is one of those, like, when you go to the horror movie, like, White Noise, and it's supposed to be this scary movie, and then at the end it all ends up like, yeah, maybe Michael Keaton ends up still being a ghost, but then, like, the credits music is like, I know you're out there, somewhere out there. And it's like a happy, like, 90s pop song. It kind of kills the vibe. Um, that's kind of the, that's kind of what I would expect to be playing over this as the ending credits is something like, uh, I'd give up forever to touch you. I don't know. Uh, yeah, no, it's not that bad, but, uh, yeah, you know, (laughs) again, like I have to say, I have to get a credit for being not ending the way that I expected it to. Um, but yeah, for that intro, for the most breathless masterpiece of pure horror, so the next story we are going to talk about is Eternal Love. Hopefully this one has uh, a little bit more horror to it, but we're going to find out. So here's a blurb. Eternal Love is an all-original tale conceived, written, and drawn by Alan Hopkins, who created TTTTT's only other original story back in TTTTT number two. This story was originally supposed to be was originally supposed to appear last issue, but Alan put so much time and craftsmanship into the tale, one could almost say that he injected his own blood onto the printed page, that we had to push it back one issue. Well, here's your chance to enjoy this saga of love from beyond the grave. So, this here, in and of itself, would make this the first original, well, the first modern um it's still from 1992, but this would be the first uh, modern slash new uh, story that we'll have on the show. So, hey, uh, you know, that's that's a feat that that's something new. And we'll, um, you know, cheers to that. But, uh, yeah, so we'll get into this next story and maybe we can talk a little bit about Mr. Allen Hopkins. And by a little bit, I mean nothing. I can't actually find any kind of biographical information on this fella. So uh, apparently he only works for New England uh, Comics Press. So I'm assuming, I I don't know, I can't find anything about him. And New England England Comics Press website does not have any kind of biographical uh, history about themselves either. So like I said, if I did find something in that last issue of this that I covered... I don't know where I found it because, trust me, I've scoured scoured the internet for it. Um, Also, going back to the beginning when I was talking about, uh, when I was rereading, not the beginning, but I was rereading this sort of uh, blurbs when it talks about terrorology, um, I guess when I was reading it, I was thinking it's like, oh, a different comic. It's actually a really cool kind of history piece in this book that we'll get to and it, it gives history lesson sort of on some pre-code comics with focuses on publishers and I just I, it didn't connect with me that that was the name of that section of this book so I actually am going to cover that when we get to it but uh, right now we're covering Alan Hopkins Eternal Love. this one actually has a sort of host and it's just a skeleton with a hood and uh, he introduces he's got his own little book so I'm assuming the stories to tell and uh, maybe I'll go back and, and cover his story Um, in that number two of tales too terrible one day we'll see what happens i'm sure it'll happen so our hosts, here's a tragic tale of high school romance this is probably not what this person sounds this this skeleton creature sounds like but here's a tale of tragic god damn here's a tragic tale of high school romance lost and then found again beyond the grave entitled eternal love it has an exclamation point on it, though, so it's more like eternal love. Greg Williams and Sarah Scott have known each other since the sixth grade. It's no secret that they're in love. They were named couple most likely to succeed at the Brookdale Junior Prom. Now, as seniors, they face new hurdles. that you can't assume anything in the game of love. We're at a football game, and this is Greg and Sarah. Uh, he's a football player. She's a cheerleader. He looks like he's 45 it's a big game going on here, and they go in, and he's the all-star player, and, you know, they win the game, and, uh, you know, everyone's really excited. Um, turns out there was actually, there's scouts there that were there to see him. Well, Sarah has, you know, jumped on him, and she's greeting him, and they're smooching and getting all doop doo and so his buddies pull up, and they're like, hey, come on, let's, you know, we're, all the boys are going out to party and celebrate, don't know why she's not going with him, but she's like, okay, bring him back in one piece. You Remember your promise to take me to the prom. Well, they are all riding in this very fancy convert- convertible. And um, he's talking about how lucky he is to have her. And she's great. And all the other dudes are like, oh, what are those wedding bells I hear? They're like, oh, are you kidding? We'd be lucky to have anything. or We'd all be lucky uh, to have a girl like Sarah. So the driver is like. You know, you two already act like you're married and more than my parents. Now, I can't wait to go to college and meet a woman. He turns around, well, as he's not looking, uh, they're like, look out. And they go head on with a, uh, an 18-wheeler, which sends them flying off of a, uh, I guess, off the road. Car is absolutely destroyed. Not more than an hour later, as the finishing touches are made for a weekend celebration, the phone rings and Sarah's mother answers. H- Hello? Yes? What? Oh, no. Not the boy's. Sarah comes around the corner. Who is it, mom? Is it Greg? What's the matter? Is it something we're... Oh, no. That weekend was a grim reminder of the cruel realities of life. The entire town mourned their gridiron heroes. On Sunday, they were laid to rest. Sarah, of course, it's raining. She's standing at the coffin for Greg, and she's just kind of given up, talking about how much she's lo- she loves him. And we have our host again, Whose voice, my throat is very tired and I'm not going to do a skeletal voice, so we'll just keep going with my narrator voice. Poor Sarah. She was so heartbroken that she became inconsolable, withdrawn. Finally, when there were no more tears, she threw herself at life, trying to jam-pack every moment as if it might be her last. Now we have Sarah jumping on a motorcycle with a guy named Dewey. Uh, She's blowing off her friends who are inviting her to come spend the weekend at Nancy's. So they take off speeding uh, off into nothingness, and uh, her friends are like, well, she doesn't hang out with us anymore, and, you know, ever since Greg died, she's become a different person, and they're like, well, I really hope she's safe, doesn't get hurt. Well, we see her, like, partying and puking and making out with people and doing drugs and whatnot. Um, she's kind of just become known as the party animal. Well, she's at a party one night. Guy's getting a little frisky, and she slaps him, scratches him across the face, and she says you know i said no let me go now and he slaps her and he's like you little tease come here for thrill! come here for thrills huh okay well sarah i've got some friends who would like to meet you and you see their kind of shadows behind on the wall um reflecting on sarah and she's like no no keep away so now with a kick somehow with a kick to the stomach and a punch in the groin sarah escapes into the cool empty night alone afraid and running for her life so these uh These douchebags, uh, dickheads, uh, pieces of shit, start running after They're like, you know, we can't let her tell anyone. Get some flashlights. And they're like, hey, it's only Sarah Scott. Nobody will miss that wacky ampersand star exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point. And as she's running, she's like, what the hell was going on? What have I done? You know, it would never have happened if Greg was here. So, yeah, they keep chasing after, saying things like, no, leave. The party's just starting. So she's going through brush and she gets to a fence that she starts to climb. Uh, realizing that she's, you know, you see that she's in a cemetery. Well, she falls down right at the grave of Greg and she's just kind of hanging onto it as they're approaching their flashlights are, you know, coming. It's still raining, lightning and all that stuff and she's like, Greg, oh God, if you could only help me. So these guys surround her, they pick her up. They're like, all right, we're time to party. She's so, you know over there, over there. Um, We see lightning strike Greg's grave. And somebody's like, hold her down. So she's just thinking, help me, Greg, please help me. And these guys are on top of her. Well, Greg starts echoing through the ground. As the storm reaches its peak and lightning saturates the ground, a desperate cry is answered. Your rumble. Slowly at first, deep in the earth's bowels, it starts as a tremble. Then inch by inch, gravel by gravel, it rises. Agonizingly. It fights upward towards freedom. She yells, Greg, now we have a guy on top of her that's like, come here, little Sarah, I want you. And as the lightning strikes again, you've got the body of Greg coming up behind him, and the guys are all freaking out, and they're trying to sort of tackle him. They're like, who is this guy? I don't know, but I think he knows. Sarah's like, Greg, is that you? Greg, don't look at me. Don't look at what's become of me. The shambling mockery of life who was once Greg Williams reaches out in an effort to ease her pain and he groans Sarah but and you have another guy come up he p- takes a knife out i don't know who or what that is but he's going to taste this steel right between and he stabs the guy uh, like right in the through the gut right in the back through his gut and she screams look out and then she, as she's grabbing onto Greg's body she's like stop it leave us alone and the guy runs away he's like let me out of here Kneeling at the top of the hill, the two lovers find happiness. For the last time, they get struck by lightning and eternity. Now there's a grave for Sarah Scott right next to Greg. The young men found alive at the scene were in no condition to explain the disruption of Greg Williams' resting place. He was laid to rest once more with Sarah beside him. As the young lovers were united forever in a way denied to them in life. Now... Please proceed to our next terrible tale. We'll meet again, soon enough. I have to say, um, when I was, you know, reading up on this before I read it the first time, I was like, I, I've I've talked before about how I just new horror stories don't always connect with it. Just depends. It really depends. They don't always really connect with me, especially when it's trying to be throwback. Um. It's, it's hard to, to get that feeling. Um, I didn't have that issue with this one. It really, I'm not going to say the art, like, looks like it's straight out of the, you know, but I'm telling you, it, it, it's a really good, um, you know, stab at being like an old school horror comic. It looks, um, man, it looks great. Uh, (laughs) very impressed. And um, the story itself, I'm going to be honest, especially compared to the last two, it gets pretty disturbing, uh, obviously, with the, yeah, to me, it's implied, obviously, they're trying to rape her, gang rape her, which is disturbing in and of itself, that subject, I I don't, um, I'm very fortunate that I don't, at least, as far as I know, I don't, I don't know anyone, who has experienced that? Um, and I don't, wouldn't ever wish that on anyone, obviously. But um, for some reason, despite the fact that I don't have any experience with knowing anyone that that's happened to or anything like that, it, it's still a subject that, like, rape in general, but especially something like this, um, it, it's very hard for me. I guess as it should be for, but it's very hard for me to watch. You know, like if it comes up in a movie or something, I, I really. That's not something I need to see in a horror movie. You know, there there are other ways to shock and and scare people. Um, this one isn't graphic. It's not like I, it's kind of left up to like. Well, we don't know if anything has actually happened to her yet. You know, it's about to until you know her undead lover lover comes to save her from these guys, scare them off and whatnot. Um, so, I honestly. I, I really loved this story as far as, like, the redemption aspect and, like, the uh, this sort of morbid love story aspect, um, which is funny because it came right after that Reluctant Witch, which was, like, a terrifying story of terror. Uh, this is actually more chilling, if you want to call it that, um, than before, and it's not even the monster aspect. It's it's the monster of, of men, uh, humans. That's the terrifying part. It, that's the part that unsettles you, that makes you sick at your stomach. Um, and, uh, you know, Hey, I thought the story was very effective. I'm glad they didn't have to go through and be graphic with, uh, the sort of gang rape thing. It's sort of implied that, uh, not implied. It's kind of, like I said, it's left up to you to like, I don't, in my mind, it doesn't look like they were successful in it, but there's also the progression of when you see her scream for Greg kind of echoing down through the dirt where that's where it's kind of like, it's some gray area of maybe something is happening to her. And, you know, I don't know. I, I I would like to think maybe they didn't quite get there yet. And I would be, um, much more comfortable thinking that, but you know, again, it is a horror story. So, uh, and it is a quite serious one. It'd be very easy to play it, play it, you know, goofy or whatnot, but it doesn't. I mean, it, I, I actually really, really like this a lot more than I thought it was going to. Um, like I said, so, Hey, Alan Hopkins, put more st- information about yourself on the internet because uh, maybe I'm just looking in the wrong places. But I can't. I mean, he's done things for you know a lot of these uh, NEC comics uh, books. But uh, as far as information about him and or keeping up, whatever, that's that's somebody that I would like to keep up with. But uh, yeah, so uh, we'll go ahead and move on to. The next story, which is "The Last Man Returns," now the blurb in this is "The Last Man Returns" is a nice creepy monster story by master artist Bob Powell. It comes from Black Cat Mystery number thirty-six. The twist ending surprised me, even though it isn't all that unusual. Can't say more without giving it away. Read it yourself and let me know what you think. So not a lot of not a lot of history there, but we will uh, look up Black Cat Mystery um, for a little extra little extra information, background on that, and maybe some of the people involved. Now, uh, Black Cat, Black Cat Mystery, has a little bit of history for this one. Um, It is published by Harvey Comics, which was an American comic book publisher founded in New York City by Alfred Harvey in 1941 after buying out the small publisher, Brookwood Publications. His brothers, Robert B. and Leon Harvey, joined shortly after. Uh, the company soon got into licensed characters, which by the 1950s became the bulk of their output. The artist Warren Cri- Kramer is closely as, or Kramer maybe, probably Kramer, Kramer. That's what, like, people in high school called me Crimmer because my name is Chris Rimmer, and now I'm like, it's all coming full circle. Harvey's signature mascot is Joker, a Harley Quinn jack-in-the-box character. Harvey Comics was founded by the Harvey Brothers, which we've named uh, Alfred, Leon, and Robert in the 1940s after first acquiring an existing faltering line from Brookwood Publications, Speed Comics. The titles' headliners were Shock Gibson and Captain Freedom, a patriotic hero like The Shield. Harvey added more anthologies, including Champion Comics and Pocket Comics from the new titles. Only one would stay around for a while, The Black Cat, a Hollywood starlet slash superhero, which was published uh, into the 1950s. Harvey began a shift to licensed characters, who, in 1942, took took over as the radio hero Green Hornet's publisher from uh, Holyoke after, or yeah, Holyoke after six issues. Harvey added, added additional, Harvey, Harvey added additional titles, such that most of their titles were licensed. Licensed characters included Joe Palooka, Blondie, Dick Tracy, and other newspaper strip characters. The company ultimately became best known for characters it published in comics from 1950s onward, particularly those it licensed from the animation company Famous Studios, a unit of Paramount Pictures starting in 1951. These include Little Audrey, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Baby Huey, and Herman, and Catnip. My cat literally just meowed. It's probably not in here because I've got noise reduction on, but my cat really was like, ooh, Catnip, you say? I'm trying to get high as hell. Harvey also licensed popular characters from newspaper comic strips such as Mutt and Jeff and Sad Sack. In addition, Harvey developed such original properties as Richie Rich, Little Dot, and Little Loda. Little Loda, probably. While the company tried to diversify the comics it published, with brief forays in the 1950s and 1960s into superhero suspense, horror, western, and other forms and such imprints as Harvey Thriller and Thriller Adventure, children's comics were the bulk of its output. On July 27, 1958, Harvey purchased the October 1950 through March 1962 famous studio cartoons, including character rights and the rights to the cartoon shorts, but excluding Popeye. The famous cartoons were repackaged and d- distributed to television as Harvey tunes, and Harvey continued production on new comics and a handful of new cartoons produced for television. Casper the Friendly Ghost, who had been famous, famous most popular original character, now became Harvey's top draw. Associated characters such as Spooky the Tough Little Ghost, the Ghostly Trio, Casper's Horse Nightmare, Hot Stuff the Little Devil, and Wendy the Good Little Witch were added to the Harvey line. Now there's more information that you can find on Harvey Harvey Comics and the history and the decline in sales and all the different shifts there, but right now we're actually going to switch to uh, Black Cat, which is what our story that we're about to talk about is from, which has, like I said, a little bit of background in and of itself. So The Black Cat is a comic book venture heroine published is a comic book adventure heroine published by Harvey Comics from 1941 to 1951. Harvey also published reprints of the character in both the mid-1950s and the early 1960s. The character's creation is claimed by the Harvey family to have originated with publisher Alfred Harvey, but there is no uh, corroborating evidence for this. The Black Cat debuted in Pocket Comics number 1 August 1941 an experimental digest-sized comic book published by Harvey and was illustrated by Al Gabriel, or Albert Gabriel, or Alfred Gabriel, possibly. But he just goes by Al. After, After the demise of Pocket Comics, the Black Cat became one of the features in the anthology Speed Comics, lasting until the title's demise in 1947. By 1946, Black Cat had also gained her own title, which published her adventures until 1951 before changing its content to Horror Stories, The title was subsequently known as Black Cat Western Comics, Black Cat Mystery Comics, Black Cat Western Mystery, Black Cat Western Comics, and Black Cat Mystic, before reverting to Black Cat for the final three issues, number 63 through 65. Black Cat also appeared in a separate Harvey anthology, all new comics, in issues 6, 9, and 15. Writers on the Black Cat series are not positively known. Artists who worked on the feature after Al Gabriel include Pierce Rice, Arturo, uh, Casanueva, Bob Powell, Jill Elgin, Joe Kubert, uh, Lee Elias, Elias, Lee Elias, occasionally inked by John Belfie, provided the art from 1946 until the features end in 1951. And again, there's a lot more history. Uh, most of this goes into the actual character of Black Cat, and not necessarily, um, you know, the issue or the horror stuff. But I can say that this story, The Last Man Returns, is credited to have been scripted and uh, the art, or at least pencils and inks, by Bob Powell. And as of right now, that's all I can really find on that that I think is actual uh, valuable information to uh, this story and where it comes from. So we can go ahead and dive into The Last Man Returns.
1: The Last Man
0: Returns, and this is from the... Sort of opening page that gives you the little blurb. Their spill says, The Last Man Returns is a nice creepy monster story by master artist Bob Powell. It comes from Black Cat Mystery number 36. The twist ending surprised me. Even though it isn't all that unusual, can't say more without giving it away. Read it yourself and let me know what you think. So, we open with a crowd of people running away from a giant shadow in an alley of a downtown building. They're jumping over fences and whatnot. The world of today is visited by a nightmare death as the last occupant from the world of tomorrow comes back to wreak vengeance on those who have made him what he is. What is the terrible fate of our world when The Last Man Returns? Late in 1952, a dread figure stalks the darkened streets of the city. There's a dark... uh, darkly dressed figure with a sort of... some sort of figure... of uh, some sort of... Cloth covering the bottom half of its face, but you can tell the person is deformed. A police officer confronts him. Just a second, mister. What's the idea of walking around in a mask? You
1: will see in a moment.
0: Now we see the uh, revealed face of this orc-like
1: creature. Uh, Take a good look. It's the last sight you will ever see. It's drooling and gross looking. Now that I've satisfied your curiosity... It's time for me to satisfy my vengeance.
0: The officer is backing up, and he pulls out the gun and shoots him a few times. This officer is very surprised that he has shot this, this creature four times, and it's still alive. The creature claims that nothing can kill it, so he picks up the police officer, and we don't see what he does, but we assume he
1: murders him, obviously. Uh, he says, This is why I returned, to destroy those who made me the horrible mockery of a man that I am.
0: That night, a red river of carnage and terror flowed in the path of the monster. And by morning, we see the monster disguised again, but still terrifying the newsboy, getting a copy of the Daily News, or Daily Views, as this said. And the headline is, Reign of Terror Follows in Wake of Monster from the Future. Grotesque being claims to be last man on Earth returned via time machine. Now, I had to stop and ask myself, when did this monster sit down and give an interview? First of all, Uh, and and delve this information, uh, you know, overnight. How did they gather this information overnight? I guess time may or may not tell. So he's reading the paper, and he sees something about an atomic scientist uh, gathering at Parsons Hall. So he says, he's thinking to himself, atomic radiations made me what I am. Uh, It is they who must feel the full weight of my vengeance. Now I'm giving him a pleasant thinking voice, because I imagine he likes to listen. Here is thinking voice as not quite as grotesque as his actual one might possibly be. I mean, hell, he could talk like that, for all I know. He just looks monstrous, so you want to give him a monstrous voice? Maybe he does talk like this, like me. Later that day, a man at a podium, we are assembled to explore the mysteries of atomic energy and... What? The the
1: monster! Yes, it is your...
0: Yes, it is your explorations that made me, and I have returned to show you how I feel about that. He's not as threatening that way. So I feel I've got to go back to the gutter room. So men start running and he's flinging people around. Uh, You know, it's going crazy. So one of the the two men kind of uh, pair up and one says, it's no use trying to help the others. Nothing can hurt him. We must get away and see what we can do about saving the world from his horrible
1: vengeance. As they're running down an alley, there's nothing we can do. Reynolds, we're powerless against him. Everyone is powerless against him. Not quite. Follow me. I have a plan.
0: It was early evening when Reynolds was ready to put his plan into action, and... He cannot be killed, but he will run from pain. I have everything in readiness. We must seek him out and force him to go where we direct. Now we do have a mob gathered with torches. They come upon the body of a woman laying on the ground, and one of the men asked, The monster! Have you seen him? Look for yourself. He was here only moments ago, says another man pointing at the body. The hunter became the hunted, and soon, I was right.
1: He can't stand the pain.
0: Surround him. Force him to follow me. Now, he's got the fire. It looks like he's setting the monster on fire. Um, I'm assuming that's kind of what's happening, and the monster screams. He's like, away from me. Take it away. Now, this monster didn't flee when he was shot four times. I would imagine that would hurt, but the fire, I guess, you would think they could have deducted it down to fire, but I also don't know how the fuck he deducted any of this information that he's uh, put together on uh, how, you know... This creature works, but we're going to sit here and go with it. A strange process... Oh, nope, not right. A strange procession marched grimly toward the outskirts of the city. The monster continues to scream, and we've now got multiple men setting this monster on fire. Or, you know, keeping the fire on him. Keep out of his reach and surround him with a burning barrier of flames. Follow me! Finally, force him into it. I've set the dials and made an extension so that I can start the dial from the outside start the machine rather i start it from the outside is what he says um now they've got him in this sort of glass orb with a little you know it's got a floor to it but it's clear now the man starts to he's got the dial in his hand and he says good now if i've understood this contraption no human will ever see him again reynolds pressed the starter and there he goes and i wouldn't want to be in the machine when it reaches its destination we see the machine sort of uh, jetson its way out uh, Up, up into the sky. Back, back along... Wait, why does it say it twice? Back, back along the untraveled pathway of time went the machine until... Now the monster is outside of his cube or orb here and there is a T-Rex standing not far away from him. As he's running away from this T-Rex and he's just screaming, no, no, I can't, I can't be destroyed now. I, I can be, no. So by a strange paradox of time... The last man on earth became the first and was destroyed millions of years before we were born. And the T-Rex is starting to devour him. Okay. So um, they had four pages to tell this story. Uh, I do not blame them for, you know, uh, you know having to really rush things. Um, I'll say this. Bob Powell's art is incredible. I love the art in this this little short story. Uh, It's fantastic. It definitely has its own style, and uh, you know I can't gripe really about any of that except for maybe uh, you know the T Rex. It it really looks like it, it, it. Here's the thing: it could be a lot to do with maybe the original printing on poor quality paper, or maybe having to how this book was copied into to be repressed. Or this, or scanned in, or whatever. That it could have done it, um, but yeah, the, the T-Rex looks a little... Uh, it, I don't know. It looks a little just motionless or something. It kind of just looks like a statue, but it is drooling. Uh, no tell. And that's really the only thing I noticed that was like, that's weird. Everything else is awesome. Um, as far as the writer, Bob Powell is actually credited as uh, writing this as well. So uh, that's yeah, what we're going to go with there, and... It looks like he did the script, Pencil Xanny. Yeah, he did everything, it seems like. Um, it's also noted to be a sequel to The Last Man on Earth. Um, and I, I'm i assuming that that is another... I, I don't know if that has anything to do with the obvious Last Man on Earth. You know, Um or not, or if that was just another story from Black Cat Mystery, or I don't know. So that's something that's for another day. But that that issue of Black Cat Mystery, like I said, was not, number 36 from 1952, June, actually. And it was uh, released by Harvey Publishing, or Harvey Horrors, or however they card it. And I've seen it a few different ways. Uh, and the editor was Leon Harvey. Our next story here, chugging right along, is Last Supper from Weird Chills, number one. Last Supper was written by Bruce Hamilton, pencils by Sal uh, Trapani, and inks as well by Sal Trapani. Now, this was reprinted in Shock, number one, from Stanley Publications, In actually, I don't have a date for that, but it was originally released, like I said, in Weird Weird Chills from July of 1954. The blurb here uh, in this book is, Last Supper comes directly from Gilmore's Weird Chills, number one. It was also reprinted in Shock, number one, another black and white Stanley Publications magazine in 1969. Okay, so that's what I was looking for. And it probably appeared in other installments of these magazines since Stanley Pubs frequently cross-printed from their small store of original art. This story is (laughs) quintessentially bad. I'm always torn between including in these these pages the very best horror stories drawn by the real masters of comic art and the absolute worst stuff, which is truly so bad that it's great. I guess the best solution is always to compromise and try to offer some of each genre. I say genre because there are indeed two entirely different genres. Read Last Supper and you'll see exactly what I mean. We see a man standing in the rain at night under a streetlight right in front of some steps leading up to an apartment door. He is wearing a wide brim hat and he's got his duster coat or raincoat, whichever, pulled tightly around his neck. A gruesome sort of apprehension sweeps over my body as I urge my reluctant feet forward along the wide, mist-peppered Manhattan sidewalk. I nervously clutch a small package in my pocket, as my eyes scan the bobbing shadow that elongates at my very footsteps, scanning the outline of a respected scientist destined to collaborate this night on a murder. 43 West, this is the place. I climb the front steps, open the front door, and turn down my collar. One flight up and then shut up. I- Should I go through with it? Helen, my sweetheart, up there with her husband waiting for me to come and kill my best friend, I knock, and Joel Lando, Mystery Writer Deluxe, greets me heartily at his apartment door. George, come in, come in. As Joel hangs my coat, I reassuringly slip the tiny package into Helen's trembling fingers. What have you been doing with yourself lately, George? Helen excuses herself to go prepare dinner. I realize I must be casual in my conversation so he will suspect nothing. Come on, in the study, George. We can talk shop there. My mind lapses momentarily to the horror of what would happen if George should go into the kitchen at this time. What's the matter, George? You didn't even hear me. Huh? Oh, yes, well, come to think of it, you ought to be interested in the research I'm doing right now. You write science fiction too, don't you? Good fortune is with me. I can go into the monologue now, if necessary, to keep the conversation from lagging. Yes, off and on. Let me tell you how I first happened to get interested in this experiment. I light a cigarette. Take a long drag as I lean back and begin. A few weeks ago, a research chemist concluded a long series of experiments on a new type of explosive. He reasoned that if a certain combination of elements were detonated, everything within a wide radius would disintegrate and leave a blinding, white, yawning void. Everything would just disappear, eh? Wow, you say he concluded this work? Yes, evidently. Somehow, though, probably through an accident, he detonated himself and his laboratory. Don't tell me that's what you're working on now. Exactly. Uh, but don't worry, I'm not going to disintegrate myself into a vacuum. I'll be exceedingly careful. My calculating, uh, my calculating points to some organic material as being one of the elements that Helen calls. And my train of thought is broken, for I know the fatal meal is ready. Ah, sirloin steak. Nothing better. Except for maybe a filet, but that's just me. You could sit over here, George. The phone. It couldn't have rung at a better time. Be with you in just a minute. Darling. Shh, he might hear. Did you slip my granule formula into his food? I put it in the okra. He's the only one who likes the slimy stuff. George, what was that powder? Poison? Much better than that. It's a violent action-swelling compound that will expand upon contact with heat. Then, it will bloat him until he dies of internal hemorrhages, and then... It will dissolve without a trace. It'll confuse the coroner and the police, Helen. They'll never prove it was murder. Quick, sit down. I heard him hang up. As Joel re enters the room, I feel myself acting almost too nonchalantly. I have the hardest time getting away from that Mr. Sims on the phone. My host breaks the uncomfortable silence with a jolting remark. While you were talking in there, I got an idea for a murder mystery about a woman who wants to kill her husband. As the suspense mounts, I can feel my temples pulsating. What's the motive? Infidelity. What else? His wife gets a hold of an explosive which can be given in food and ignited by feeding the victim hot coffee. I stumble through a feeble comment as my mind follows Helen to the kitchen. Helen has gotten up from the table. Sounds like a rather unlikely plot. Care for some okra, George? Joel rambles on as he eats, but I scarcely hear a word he says. Some people go for just that kind of story, you know? I think I'll call it... The mawkish mess. How could he possibly suspect? We've been so careful, yet it's almost impossible to be a coincidence. Helen feints a smile as she comes back to the table. This is it. Now we'll find out if he's on to us. Piping hot coffee, everyone. He's the first to drink, and my loved one and I are swept with a wave of relief. It'll just be a few seconds, dear. I must say that my friend, if you'll pardon the ambiguity, is no fool. He immediately senses this situation. Hey, "'What's going on?' Then utters, "'Well, yeah, because you just said "'it'll just be a few seconds, dear. "'You gave the whole thing away.' Then utters a tenesmic-like grunt and uh, uh, splatters all over the room. We do see a bloof and uh, <laughs> a huge explosion with his limbs and his head sort of separating. "'My God, Helen! "'That reaction was far more violent than I figured!' I stare at utter disbelief and frustration at the sight before me. "'Now I'm hit with the truth.' and my sickened body is electrified with fear. That explosion. Why didn't, I, why didn't I think of that powder before? All my research calculations have pointed to it as being the chemical spark that would trigger my chain reaction bomb. I grab my frightened love and scream in her ears, Helen, do
1: you realize what this means? Any second now, we might disintegrate into a vacuum, into a white yawning...
0: So... I didn't really think it was that bad. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, it's short again. There's a lot more detail to what they're talking about, at least than like, you know, some of the other ones they They talk through the detail. I don't know. I didn't think it was that bad. Uh, it feels like maybe Bruce Hamilton has it out for uh, maybe ghost writers, but um, other than that, I kind of enjoyed it. Uh, whatever. Call me crazy. Um, yeah. It ends there. Obviously on a white blank page other than the word end. Very small in the bottom right corner. So, hey, whatever. I mean, hey, hey, the different strokes for different folks. But the next story we've got here, and I believe uh, this is the first of the last three stories here. And again, they're all very short, but um, I'm trying to find the blurb. They're split apart, or they're split up um, throughout the book. So it's The Iceman Cometh. From Stories Dark Mysteries, number 16, it was discussed in last issue's Terrorology. This tale is a classic example of how Story imitated EC's shock-ending crime formula for comic book stories. It's drawn by the mystery artist. See last issue for more info on the mystery artist contest. Suggestions continue to come in for identifying this as of yet unknown but capable individual who drew a number of yarns for Story Comics back in the 1950s. While I think I do know the mystery artist's name, some of the feedback refi- received so far makes me uncertain. Consequently, we will continue the Identify the Mystery Artist contest for at least another issue. The prize is a free is- six-issue sub to blah, 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 This is obviously long past. But it says, um, the winner is the first person to correctly identify this artist. If the artist identified differs from who I think it is, then I would require some sort of proof. For example... Note of a signed story. A few hints. It's not Bill Benulis, Benulis, sorry, Steve Ditko or Bill Bill Discount. So that's interesting. Now, I actually tried to find more info on this story in particular and it does not... I can't find any kind of database or anything that shows the Iceman Cometh from Dark Mysteries number 16. And I found a couple of different versions of Dark Mysteries um, and I... Uh, at least where I was checking, couldn't find it. Um, most of the dark mysteries that I think this one probably would have been from uh, don't actually have. Don't actually have. Uh, um, I can't find the information when that issue is actually listed, which is a different, I guess, earlier volume from the one uh, 1951, I think, than the one that I can actually find info on from 1954, I believe. That doesn't have this story in it. So it's got to be that other one, and it's just probably a little bit harder to find. So uh, anyway, we can dig in. This tantalizing tale of horror will shock you right down to the marrow of your bones. It's a happy little narrative of death and intrigue we call The Iceman cometh. The year was 1926, and the place, a medium-sized town in New England. It all started on a hot day in August. Here we meet Lillian who is uh, very cross with the Iceman, a smaller, uh, older guy who uh, continues to drip ice on hot days throughout the pantry and ruining her floor, who she uh, screams and yells at. That night, Lillian and her husband resumed a familiar argument. Now, Lillian is just, she's had it with this. Uh, She's had to clean up this Iceman's mess, not his meth, but his mess, uh, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't pick up after himself when he does so, drags in mud and whatnot. So her husband, Henry, he is insisting that he can't really do anything about it. Uh, she is demanding to replace the icebox with an electric refrigerator. Now, he reminds her that this is really bad for his business. Uh, he can't risk it. And, of course, she's like, this is 1926. Even poor people are getting electric refrigerators. Uh, they're not going anywhere. And he says that's why his business is going to completely cave, uh, because he can't sell ice when people don't need it. Henry P. Bascom owned and operated the only ice plant in town. Everybody needed Henry until electric refrigerators came along. And he insists it would not look good for business if he were actually to get an electric refrigerator as well. Not that anyone had to know, but I guess back in the 20s, maybe everybody knew everything about everyone because it's smaller communities. But Lillian wasn't to be quieted. They argued right through dinner. He's talking about all the wonderful things he's provided, clothes, a good home, jewelry, entertainment, you know, all the things that women like, right? Because they just have to stay at home all day, according to this. Uh, Very dated book. I'm obviously being facetious. Now she says, yeah, that, that was before business was bad, but what have you done lately? Nothing. So they continued to argue after dinner. But she tells him, Ice or no ice, she's she's tired of everything. She's young. She doesn't intend to rot here for the rest of her life. And he says, you know, "Keep quiet. You're going to keep your ice box and like it." And then they argued until they went to bed. So after she, uh, you know, talks down to him some more about you know him being older than, like as much older than she is, uh, he finally gives and says, "All right, all right, I'll send a new ice man. Now go to bed." Because she, you know, says, "Even you know, at least get someone who can bring the ice in uh, and not make such a mess." So. Henry kept his word, and the following day, now here we meet Walter, a young, uh, but still older. In the first panel, he looks like freaking Dracula. He's got like a widow's peak, but then, you know, from there you see he's got a little bit more of a quaff. He looks a lot younger. So they meet, and they immediately hit it off. Uh, he, he compliments. Uh, he says, nobody told me Bascom had such a good-looking maid. But Of course, she's like, no, maid's upstairs. I'm Miss Bascom. He was young, strong, handsome. Lillian liked his smile and the way he looked her over. The boss's wife, eh? Well, the compliment still goes. Where will I put the ice? And I'm trying to avoid the obvious joke. And she says, right over there. So she's she's digging this guy. She's really into Walter. Uh, He's coming in. He's dripping ice fucking all over the place, just like the other guy. But she doesn't mind it so much, all the dripping. So when we go to this moment where... She goes to throw a towel on some of these puddles and he's like, no, I insist, I'll do it, ma'am. And so as they both reach for the towel, their hands collide. And she says, Lillian is my name, Walter. Walter's touch was exciting and there was nothing backward about his manner. Something tells me I'm gonna like my new route, especially coming here. And something tells me I'm gonna like seeing you. I don't know how she talks. I don't like doing girls' voices, but whatever. That's how it all started. Lillian found a man who thrilled her as Henry never could, and Walter had found what he was looking for in less than a week. Or looking for two in less than a week, rather. She says, Walter, I'm crazy about you.
1: It goes for me too, baby.
0: I'm changing his voice as it goes from panel to panel because now he looks more like a gangster, like like a mobster, rather, not a gangster. In the weeks that followed, Henry noticed that Lillian stopped nagging him for an electric refrigerator. He never realized why. How's the new Iceman, Lillian? Satisfied with his work? Yes, Henry, completely satisfied! Exclamation point, baby! Lillian and Walter continued their clandestine relationship for months, and then Walter grew impatient. Now, Walter wants her to divorce Henry, obviously. She's like, you love me? And she's like, don't be ridiculous. You don't have money, and Henry... Is in bad business, but he's not that bad. He's still got money. And she says, you know, reminds. She says, yeah, sure. I love you, only, but I only married Henry for his money. But you wouldn't want me to give it up, would you? And he's like, but no, but there must be some way. And the only possible answer, we're about to find out. That night, as Henry walked home, he felt pretty low. His business was shrinking to nothing, and the future looked grim. Now he's thinking to himself, refrigerators, bah, they're ruining. Hey. What's Walter doing at my house at this time of day? It looks like it's nighttime, but whatever. Henry quietly slipped in the front door and tiptoed through the house toward the pantry. Lillian and Walter? And from behind the door we hear, But Lillian, that's murder. Henry was stunned. He flattened himself against the wall of the adjoining room and listened. Yes, it's murder. Don't be a fool. Henry's got $15,000 in insurance. "'Do you want to be an ice man all your life? "'With his insurance, we'd be set forever.' "'Oh, honey. Oh, boy. "'Yeah, sure, sure, but how, honey? "'$15,000 is swell, but I don't want to hang for it. "'See, now, Walter, he knows kind of more about what's going on. "'Don't worry, darling. Little Lillian's got got it all figured out. "'It's neat and simple. "'The ice chest in the kitchen has no safety catch. "'What if poor sweet Henry were to get locked inside?' Perfect, baby. He'd freeze to death. Somehow this plan doesn't seem to be panning out, but we'll see. It'll look like an accident. I'll lure him into the chest and slam the door. Then I'll go to my sister's for two days. And when I get back, frozen Henry. You can tell the police he got locked in and nobody was here to hear him yell. Henry had heard enough. He left by the back door and went for a walk. Two days passed before he called Walter into his office. Walter... I wonder if you'd mind working late tonight. I've got a special job in the ice house. Sure, Mr. Bascom, I'll be glad to. Why not? No sense letting the old goat get suspicious. Now, goat has a different meaning in 2019 than it did back then, so kids these days might be a little confused reading this. They're like, which one does he love? Henry worked very late that night, and when he finally got home, Lillian's packing her bags, and Henry's questioning it. Of course, she says her sister's sick and uh, wants her to come down for a few days. Uh, she says, I'll miss you, but, you know, I gotta do it. Henley, uh, Hen Lily is what I was about to say, and that's just not right. Lillian retired a short time later, but Henry stayed up far into the night. The following morning, now Lillian tells Henry that there's something wrong with the ice chest because the ice has been melting. Uh, I asked if he'll have a look at it. He's like, certainly, my sweet. Henry stepped into the ice chest, and Lillian quickly swung the big door shut. So long, my dear husband. And the next time I see you, you'll look like a fat ice cream cone. And she laughed maniacally. Now, the thing is, there's... Well, no, it's not. He heard them planning this. I don't know. I just have to think you'd be better off not yelling something like that. Uh, Anyway, whatever. Lillian made sure she was seen leaving town. Now, she has a short conversation um, with the... Man selling a ticket, but he also mentions that it's a chilly day. Uh, she's like, yes, it is. And she thinks to herself, it's even colder for some people. But I, going back to the beginning, we're talking about, I mean, I guess time could have passed here. I don't know if I missed something, but it does say it was in August. And I don't know, does New England have chilly days in August? I mean, I know it's different here in the South. We don't have chilly days uh, literally ever, um, but I don't know. Somebody answer that for me. And Lillian made sure that she was seen returning, too. Her alibi was perfect. Now, she talks to, I guess, this same teller at the window as she returns and tells him that her sister's doing much better now. When she got home, Lillian immediately went to the pantry and tugged at the handle of the ice chest door. Now she's, you know, kind of thinking of her plan and the next steps to take about, you know, when to call the police and arrange the funeral. The heavy door began to swing open. Here we see that she is... Uh, also planning to wait at least two weeks before contacting Walter, and that he is probably a nervous wreck waiting for... Lillian swung the door wide open and looked in. She screams. Walter's head grinned down at Lillian from the uppermost of the new-cut blocks of ice, the ice chest walls. Man, this is typed terribly. So I think this is what it's supposed to say. Walter's head grinned down at Lillian from the uppermost of the new-cut blocks of ice against the ice chest walls? That works. The rest of him was neatly stacked beneath. It is pretty gruesome here. We've got uh his limbs are frozen and kind of floating here, but they're not necessarily just intact. It's like he cut the hand off of the arm and that's in a separate block of ice. We've got the rest of the arm and some other chunk of body part, and another with it, and then there's like a bone and yeah, I don't know. It's really nice looking. It's good good looking art here. Henry's laughing, just laughing, losing his fucking mind, laughing, laughing. Want some ice today, lady? Henry threw the blocks of ice containing Walter's body into the furnace, and then dragged Lillian's limp form into the ice chest. After removing the safety catch he'd recently installed in the door, he turned, hummed a little tune, and slammed the door behind him. Then, Henry went on a trip for a few days. All right, yeah, look at that. Look at that. The old switcheroo here. Now, Obviously murder is going crime murder is going to be the centric or a central you know focus of what's gonna happen um and that's fine you know I'll joke and be like, oh, it's the only possible outcome well, in this type of book it is uh but what I always find funny is that it's you know the person who hears uh, hears the, the the husband or whoever well in this situation, the husband and many other stories like it that hears the plot being uh, reviewed by the two conspirators, um, I love that, like, their first plan of action is, okay, I'm gonna wait, and I'm gonna lure that son of a bitch in, and I'm gonna chop his body up, like, they're just as crazy as the, uh, people plotting, and, uh, they're just as capable of murder and, uh, psychotic tendencies, um, so that's always really funny and interesting to me, so, But I I enjoyed this one as well. The art is really good. Um, I'm very curious about this mystery artist. And um, I actually... So, originally reading this series of books with these reprints, I tended to skip the sort of um, non-comic matter. So, like, this series has um, Terrorology that I've talked about before uh, or in here in the lineup. And it's actually a really cool thing series that they put in all of these books. And that's actually what I'm going to do for my next episode. Cause it goes into history of different horror comics and publishers and stuff like that. So, um, that's, what's really cool here, uh, with this. And, but I was going to say, I, I, eventually went back and read a lot of those and it's, it's just very cool. And like I said, I, I do want to do that for the next episode. Um, but, There's a lot of just little, fine little tidbits and whatnot in here, um, you know, for different deals. So, uh, anyway, without further ado, the next story, the final horror, yes, it's yet another Purple Claw tale. This installment appeared in Toby's Purple Claw, number three, reprinted during the pre-code horror era in Toby's own Tales of Horror, number 11. Yes, 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 I did promise not to offer any more Purple Claw adventures last issue, but... This was because, at the time, I thought we had run out of Purple Claw original art. My art director reminded me that we had one tale left. In fact, that we had saved the very best Purple Claw story for last, and I don't mean best with quotes around it, implying the best in badness. This story about a man sinking into the fathomless depths of alcoholism is a surprisingly profound and gripping rendition. Certainly well above the ordinary for the world of pre-code horror, and indefinitely... Or infinitely above the standard for Toby Comics. In fact, the story is so intense that one wonders if the unknown writer might have faced a battle with the bottle himself at some point in his life, or had a close acquaintance uh, with a drinking problem, or maybe he slash she just read a lot of potboiler paperbacks. This is the penultimate story, so we'll have this one again and one more, and that will close out this issue. And I'll give you a little, um, I guess, a little look into the plan for the next episode. A little bit about the Purple Claw. I'm getting this from Toonopedia. That's T-O-O-N. Uh, Toonopedia.com. The Purple Claw was first seen in Purple Claw Number 1, dated January 1953, published by Toby Press. Technically, Purple Claw wasn't a person, but a magical artifact, a bulky, ugly glove wielded by a succession of wares going back many centuries, kind of like the Witchblade or the Mask. The user was likely to be called by the name of the object, but the two were actually distinct. The human hero of the series was Dr. Jonathan Weir, who, when first seen, was a member of the U.S. Army Medical Corps. For more background on that, you can actually go to that website, like I said, Toonopedia.com. This story is it's pretty to the point um i'm not going to narrate it i'm just going to kind of i guess kind of run through it like i have with other titles before um so yeah this is the final horror we've got a man uh in you know reaching out he's drowning in water or some sort of liquid and then you have a bottle being poured in there so you get it but it's uh, could be booze there but if you haven't read the story before you don't necessarily know that And uh, Jonathan Weir is reaching his hand in with the Purple Claw, saying, The Purple Claw will save you, Bill. Grab it and hold on tight. The career of Bill Bartell, world-famous scientist, is finished, unless he can control the drinking that is dragging him down, down to the lower depths. Now, in final desperation, he has come to Dr. Weir, hoping, praying that the Purple Claw can save him from the final horror of his own folly. Now, Bill Bartell is telling Dr. Weir that he's tried everything. He can't stop drinking, um... This nightmare world that he sees when he's drunk is more real than when, you know, than real life when he's sober. And Dr. Weir is like, look, we're going to find a way to rescue you from this. We're going to, you know, we're going to fix this. We're going to save you. And I just dropped my stormtrooper. Don't know if that's going to come over on the mic or not, but I knocked it over with the book. He's talking about, Bill's talking about how horrible it is. And I have to imagine they were trying to make this look like Vincent Price. um, But it also kind of looks like Steve Buscemi. So that's pretty crazy he's describing this as he always enters this nightmare world the same way this world dissolves and he finds himself staring into the depths of a black pit a pit i know i must travel to its deepest depths he says and so you see him you know, walking through this what looks like a portal and you've got these uh, demonic looking creatures sort of peeking in and out of these black swirls that are the that make up the portal and as he's walking there they're all kind of holding their hands out like they're asking for something. There's a giant hand coming towards him, and he's just telling them to leave him alone. He doesn't have any money. And then he says, and then I see him. I never see his face, and I never want to, for I know when I do, that will be the final horror. So he's approaching this character who's wearing a sort of a newsy cap, and the shadow's covering the face of this character. So Donner, uh, J- Dr. Weir is telling him, he again, reassuring him that the Purple Claw can help him, but only if he helps himself first, just stop drinking. And he says he'll try, honest. So Bill Bartell is staying at Weir's house. And he's starting to freak out. He just needs a drink. He just needs one. He's like, I don't care what he promised. or I don't, I don't care what I promised him. He can't help me. Nobody can. So now we have uh, more narrations. Like, given superhuman strength by the Purple Claw, Weir listens to the echoing silence of Bill's empty room. So he goes there and the window is open. You see this sort of old school bedsheet, uh, rope <laughs> escape that you see in movies and stuff a lot. Bill's gone. He couldn't resist the temptation of the evil of his own weakness. Purple Claw, take me to him and into the nightmare, the nightmare of his drink-sodden world. Let me share the phantoms of his delirium tremens. Delirium tremens. I haven't heard that one before. I know delirium. Tremens, I do not. So he's there, and there's this, one of these characters here reaching out a hand, asking for money, money, and he says, it's Bill Bartell here. Have you... Have any of you seen him? I must find him. The Purple Claw points. My search has ended and just in time to save him from murder. Uh, And actually, I think, this is where it's hard to tell. I don't know if, if he has gone like downtown. He's in the slums or something. And this is actual beggar. Yeah, he has not entered the nightmare world, I don't think. So this is just a beggar and someone I guess is about to loot him. I don't know. Anyway, the Purple Claw knocks out this guy that's over Bill Bartell's body. The guy yells the Purple Claw. So he says, Bill is deep in his phantom world of drink, evil, and terror. Purple Claw, I command you, take me into that world with him. Yeah, okay, so he wasn't in there. Yeah, that's where I was just like, I didn't think so, but now these people still look like those creatures. Um, so he enters this, this this dream world and sees things as Bill Bartell does. Bill Bartell finds him, and he's telling him to go away. He doesn't belong here. He's like, I'm not, you know, I can't leave until you do. And he's telling him to not try, telling Bill not to try to run away Um he can't escape more than he can could outdistance his own heartbeat. Bill's telling him that he can't look at the Purple Claw because it's twisting his brain apart. Dr. Dr. Weir says, show me the final horror, Bill. Now, show me the, you know, show it to me right now. He's like, no, no, I can't. Don't make me. Just show me the final horror. It's the only way the Purple Claw can save you. So he does. He just sends him that way to get, walks up to a door. He's like, don't make me go in with you. And he's like, that's the, we have to go together. He opens the door and he says, There's no one there. And he says, Over, and then he, Bill says, Over there. He's coming towards us. See? So now we, we get this, this guy with the face covered up. He says, Get out of here before I kill you both. And he says, Kill us and kill yourself. Are those instructions or is that like a warning? I don't know. Uh, he's like, I was winning until you came along, but you're not going to lick me. So Dr. Weir punches this guy in the face and he says, Take his cap off, Bill. Look at the face of the final horror. Do it, Bill. Oh, right, this is the uh, the mass, the mysterious guy. He says, "Do it, Bill, and go mad, Stark, cra- Stark, raving mad." So Bill slowly approaches, and he's like, "I must see." The guy says, "See then, and be doomed, Doctor Weir. It's yourself, Bill, the evil, vicious part of your nature that is gradually becoming all of you, killing off the scientist, the good citizen you once were. Only you can save yourself now." Bill says to tell him how, and so he starts fighting it like physically, like a punching fight. He's like, that's it. Fight the shadow of corruption within yourself every inch of the way. It's kind of like Empire Strikes Back. The stronger you grow, the weaker the final horror becomes. So he's just beating the hell out of him uh, over the course of two panels. And then we have them walking, I guess, out of this dream where He says, you've won, Bill. You no longer need the Purple Claw to protect you. Dr. Weir leaves Bill's mind as he entered it through the power of the Purple Claw. Bill says, that's sure powerful medicine you're packing in the Purple Claw, Dr. Weir. I feel like a new man. Dr. Weir tells me he is a new man because he fought and won against the final horror of your dissipation. So it is what it is. I mean, I, I get the sentiment of what they're uh, talking about there. Um, yeah, I think they did describe this better as being more something out of a crime. Uh, you know, crime doesn't pay, one of those kinds of things. Then um, that fits better there. It's not really much of a horror story. Uh, I mean, I guess. I mean, I guess it is uh, for the, you know, the problem that it's addressing here. So you got to hand it to him for that. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it's not bad. It's just, it's one of those things, I think, if they would have had a lot, like a, more pages to sort of unfold a story like that, of that depth and kind of that that seriousness uh, for the subject matter, it may have hit a little bit harder. But for me, I was kind of like, okay, like, I don't know, it didn't seem... I don't know how to describe it. I know it's just an old, and it's an old story or whatnot, but, uh, you know, I know it's, you know, you can beat alcoholism, you can beat it, but it almost seems like, still like a fantasy, you know. There are people that, that overcome every day, and, you know, they, uh, you know, fight it every day, and they're, you know, get their lives back together. This makes it seem more of like a, all right, through the power of magic, we're going to be fixed. So, uh, you know, it is what it is. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on that one too much longer, because now, we are at the final, story here and it is the return of professor black and this blurb in this book describes it as uh it's this issue's second real change of pace this story comes from the saint john or comes from saint john specifically this tale appeared originally in weird horrors number nine It is drawn by lou cameron one of the best artists to work on any comics during the 1950s you'll find out find out why i call this un call sorry i'm like they're typing so weird in this you'll find out why i call this in a change of pace in reading it while i want to avoid giving away the snap ending i can't resist asking asking you to consider the question which follows after you're done Uh, and there's a spoiler warning so i'm not going to read any further even today there are those who practice the black arts of the long dead past calling upon the powers of evil for their own selfish uses such a man was professor johannes black cruel calculating deadly Therefore, when retired Detective Lucian Hallep received a hurried telephone call from the warden of the state penitentiary, some instinct warned him the call was in connection with the evil professor. So the warden is talking to de- Detective Hallop. Your hunch is right, Hallep. I've got something very important to discuss with you about Professor Black's execution. But warden, that was supposed to have taken place yesterday. When I nabbed him for murdering his servant, I thought that settled it. I wish it were that simple. You'll see what I mean when you step in here. Okay, but after all, this mystery, it had better be good. Ex-detective Hallop was startled by the unexpected sight that met his eyes. I don't get... What the... I thought you'd be surprised. Talk to him. And a few minutes later... I... I can't believe it. I know enough Greek to realize that this man must have come from ancient Greece thousands of years back. But where? How? Now you know why I wanted you here. I mean, this looks like a straight up, you know... Greek statue. Uh, But it's a guy. You know, as well as anyone, that Professor Black was fooling
1: around with what he called black magic. And that's how he happened to kill his servant. After he was convicted, we didn't expect any more trouble. But then, yesterday, as he was being
0: strapped into the electric chair, is there anything else you wish to say before you die? Nothing, Walden, except that I'm not going to die. I won't even be here when you pull the switch. And as the switch was about to be pulled,
1: "'Bal-sha-to-imroth-vin-blam!' "'Look out!' "'When our eyes adjusted to the light, "'he's gone! Black is gone! "'There's something else in the chair. "'This is the fellow who was in the chair. "'Luckily, we've been able to keep it from the newspapers for now, "'but it won't be for long. "'I never believed in this black magic business of the professors,
0: "'but I can't think of any other explanation.' And you want me to nose around to find out what I can. Okay, I'll start at Professor Black's house. A short while later, inside Professor Black's house, Detective Hallop is looking around in the library. Yeah, he's got pretty much every book on black magic. Um, he's got all kinds of stuff, jars with fetuses and skulls and whatnot. So he's there for several hours, and he finds this book. He's made marginal notations of a section about transmigration of bodies through time the substitution of one body for another. This may be the answer. These notations must be the formula Wack used for transferring his body back to ancient Greece. In that case, the only way to catch him will be for me to follow after him. And once again, the fateful sp- words were spoken. Sha To Imrath. It was the strangest pursuit of all time. A detective chasing a criminal through the centuries. Back, back, back. Until we see Hallop. Lying on the ground, he's got stars swirling around his head. Once Hallep looked around and realized he was actually in ancient Greece, he puts on a disguise to blend in, obviously. And soon, we see him walking through the streets, and he is uh, pretty taken aback. Lucian Hallep wasted no time, but went right to work on his search for Professor Black. He talked to as many people as he could, until at last, he's talking to an old man who tells him uh, he seems like he's from you know, somewhere else, the, an outlying province. Perhaps he came to Athens to view the madman. So uh, he tells him when he inquires, obviously, about what madman, he says, uh, just yesterday, a madman appeared in our streets, clothed in strange garments, speaking a strange language. He was judged to be accursed by the gods and is now being held in prison. Tomorrow he will die. Hallop quickly realized the madman must be none other than Pr- Professor Black, and he rushed towards the prison. Now he's assuming that Professor Black is probably very frustrated because he's just trading one death sentence for another. By the time he'd reached the prison, Halep had thought of a plan. Now he's talking to the guards, and it seems like the warden of this jail. He says, why should we permit you to see the madman? Because, as I have said, I'm a physician adept in the art of curing men of madness. I have journeyed from afar and know I can be successful with this one. We will give you your chance, physician. The guard will show you to the cell of the cursed one. And then he says the guards will smile upon you for this one. I think they meant to say, "Gods," <laughs> whatever. So they take him there, and the Professor Black realizes that he's got to be somebody from his own time because he looks like someone from that time. So this is where uh, Hallup is like, "I thought I saw an unguarded door back this way. Stay close behind." Now this is where I'm kind of like, well, "What about the door that was guarded?" Anyway, the Professor tells him, "No, don't worry. I didn't. I don't." I don't want to stay here and die. So they make their escape. They, uh, d- Professor Black asks him, you know, why did you go through all this trouble for me? And he's like, well, because I want you to say the formula that would take you back to the 20th century. Um, it's the only way to get the, the man who was taken from this time <laughs> back home. And Professor Black is like, no, I'm not going back to be executed. I'm going to stay here and you're staying with me. So he knocks out uh, the detective. And then he proceeds to tell him his plan. Uh, after he wakes back up, that he's going to hide in the hills until he can get away, and he says, there's nothing you can do to stop me. So hour followed hour, and both men fell into f- fitful slumber. Then how was awakened by the sound of moaning. Good heavens, he sounds as if he's in terrible agony. So he realizes that he's very sick, and uh, that Professor Black is very sick. He's like, look, we have to go back. You know, y- uh, you have the plague, basically. Uh, you know, well, of course, Professor Black's like, I don't want to die of the plague. No. Uh, so he tells him that's the only cure. So they go back uh, and they both end up where they were when they were transported or whatever. And Hallep wakes up and he calls the warden and tells him to, hey, might want to go look in your execution chamber. You might find something pretty interesting. So he tells him that, or uh, we're, now we're, you know, later that night, we're with the uh, warden and Detective Hallop again. And he tells him that he, Professor Black keeps on blabbing on about the plague, and the doctor told me it's nothing more serious than a bad case of the flu. And Dr. Detective Hallop is like, I know that. I knew it when we were in ancient Greece, but I told him he had the plague to frighten him into coming back, and it worked. And the warden says, yes, and this time the execution will take place on schedule. We'll gag him to make sure he can't use his black
1: magic again.
0: Society will
1: be well
0: rid of such a devil.
1: The end. <laughs> Ah,
0: uh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, not my favorite couple of stories backed up there, but it's the end, and I liked the overall book enough. So the art actually, I mean, the art is fantastic. That's one thing that I, I will to always uh, say is that, I mean, unless it's just terrible, you know. But uh, yeah, so art is great, and um, it's an interesting story. You know, it's an interesting idea. It kind of reminded me of, uh, what was that movie time after time where Malcolm McDowell plays HG Wells uh, and he's chasing Jack the Ripper to the 20th century. uh, And he uses the writer's time machine to escape the time period and all that. It's also got uh, Mary Steenburgen and, um, you know, a lot of other actors as well. And it's, I mean, it's, it's not, it was made in like the late seventies. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, it's, it just kind of reminds it's not even really the same premise because it actually deals with a time machine. This is obviously more supernatural or magic based, rather voodoo, whatever you want to call it, black magic. Um, so, yeah, but you know, the idea I think is a fun idea, but you know, execution is pretty key. And you know, that's enough said about that. But yeah, so thank you all so much for listening. Sorry again that it took so long to get an episode out, but um, I do have a, a schedule now. And what I'm going to do for the next episode is this. Uh, it's what I said before, but I'm just repeating it. This series t- Tales too terrible to tell. Has an ongoing series within it, uh, with the with you know old school comics history and pre code history and whatnot, and it is called Terrorology. So I am going to basically go through the entire Terrorology um, series for the next episode, and hopefully you'll enjoy it, again, it's more insight into history and whatnot, and then, um, after that, from there, probably get a little bit more involved, maybe with editing, and music, and, uh, who knows, having, having a little bit more, um, you know, fun with, I mean, not that this isn't fun, but, you know, a little bit more fun with the editing side of it, and, uh, the radio play stuff, uh, that I do enjoy doing, but it makes editing so, uh, so crazy, on top of everything else going on, and, in the day. So, um, but I love doing that and I want to get back to it. And so hopefully you all enjoy it too. If you want to get in touch with me, please, please, please feel free to do so via email. It's just horrorcomicspodcast at gmail.com and at horror comics pod on Twitter. I'd love to talk to you about anything. If you've got suggestions, um, I, you know, I'll read show mail on the show. I'd be happy to, and, um, you know, reply on the show. i we've had a couple before, so uh, it's fun. It always leads to interesting, um, I guess, thoughts and sort of uh, topics and whatnot. So feel free to, again, follow me. Hit me up. If you're listening on iTunes, Feel please uh, feel free to go leave a rating. It it helps. Um, and, you know, I, if you don't feel like doing that, I just appreciate you listening. And until next time, thank you all again so much. And keep on reading those horror comics and stay creepy, folks.